Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. Most of us talk all day long. We speak to each other, we type at each other, and of course, we talk to ourselves internally and incessantly. Talking and listening is a key part of what it means to be human. It is very hard to be a successful person in the world if you cannot communicate your ideas and listen to and understand other members of Homo sapiens. So why, given the indisputable importance of communication, are very few of us ever taught how to do it effectively? Speaking personally, many, if not most, of the biggest problems I've had in my life are the result of my failure to communicate effectively or my failure to listen to other people and make them feel heard. As some of you know, because I've mentioned it perhaps a few too many times here on the show, four years ago, I received a rather devastating 360 review. A 360 review for the uninitiated is an exercise that is often conducted in corporate circles where an anonymous survey is done of your bosses, peers, and direct reports. The idea is to give you a panoramic sense of your strengths and weaknesses. I got a colonoscopy version of a 360, which included not only my colleagues, but also my wife, my brother, and two of my meditation teachers. In any event, there was some pretty devastating stuff in there, including the fact that I could be, while communicating, sharp and dismissive. In the aftermath of that report, I started working with a pair of communications coaches who were recommended by the great meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein. Mudita Nisker and Dan Klerman both come out of the Buddhist meditation scene, and they've come up with a very simple, very easy to understand set of communication skills that have, and I don't think this is an overstatement, and you'll actually hear me say this directly to them in the interview, they have utterly transformed my life. In fact, three years after I got my first unpleasant 360, I got a second one, which was way more positive. And many of the people who participated in that 360 talked about how my communication skills had massively improved. Mudita and Dan have now written a book which concisely summarizes their teachings, and they're coming on the show today to walk you through some of the key learnings. Their new book is called Let's Talk, An Essential Guide to Skillful Communication. Side note, you can read an excerpt of the book for free if you subscribe to our TPH newsletter, which comes out every Sunday, and you can subscribe to it if you go to 10percent.com slash newsletter. Anyway, in this conversation, we talk about talking versus listening, content versus process, which they will explain, the power of saying nothing at all, something called reflective listening, and I cannot say enough how crucial this skill has been for me, the Buddhist concept of right speech, and we cover some of Dan and Mudita's foundational concepts, such as content goals versus relationship goals, I language, provisional language, the value of stating your positive intentions in a conversation, framing, and flooding versus chunking. Anyway, they will explain all of this lingo. As I said, very easy to grasp and truly, truly transformational on a day-to-day basis. By way of background, Mudita and Dan have led communication trainings for NASA, Wells Fargo Bank, and the San Francisco Transit Authority, and many other corporations. They also do work with nonprofits such as United Way and Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Dan is a professor in the School of Business at Golden Gate University in San Francisco, and Mudita is a licensed 
marriage and family therapist in private practice in Oakland. Okay, we'll get started with Dan Klerman and Mudita Nisker right after this. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I want to share a recent discovery with you. G-Defy Shoes. That's G-D-E-F-Y Shoes. G-Defy is a footwear company on a mission to relieve your knee, back, and foot pain. As many of you may know, because I've complained about it, I have dealt with knee and back pain uh, for many, many years. So I'm super excited to check out these G-Defy Shoes. First thing to know is that every pair comes with two free custom orthotics to align your body perfectly. Then there's the patented VersaShock trampoline technology in the heel, which absorbs harmful shocks and provides positive, renewed energy, empowering you to tackle your day. The other thing to know is that GDefy has integrated a strong structural system into their shoes that improves your posture and encourages you to walk using your calf and other major muscle groups. Don't just take my word for it. Read the countless customer reviews raving about the pain relief and amazing comfort people have experienced after wearing G-Defy shoes. Like I said, I'm excited to check them out myself. 
Experience pain-free living for yourself and visit gdefy.com. That's G-D-E-F-Y.com and use code HAPPIER30 to receive 30 bucks off your order of $100 or more. Mudita and Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having us, Dan. All right, Mudita, I want to start with you. I mean, you have so much training in meditation as a couples therapist. Why focus so much of your work these days on communication? It's a hard question to answer because it happened unexpectedly. It wasn't necessarily intentional. I'd say it was serendipity or perhaps good luck that led me to be sitting here as a communication expert with you. I did do graduate studies in psychology and prepared to be a marriage counselor and all of that. But what happened was I was working in a nonprofit called SAGE, doing group work with older people, people who prefer being called elders, actually, than older people. At any rate, the elders didn't have much exposure to mind-body-spirit work. And through a series of events, ended up as the director of training of that organization. Part of what I trained people to do was communication, communication skills, along with meditation and movement and lots of yoga, lots of things. But the communication seemed to really catch on. And people in this NIMH-funded training group wanted more communication and wanted me to teach them outside of the program. So I started to do that, and then more people wanted it, and more people wanted it, and before I knew it, I'm sitting here with you. I can say, just as one person, I am the beneficiary of that history, because as I will have said in the intro, your work has had a massive impact on my life, and if my wife knew we were talking right now, she would be sending you flowers. Oh, I'm I'm really happy to hear that. You know, I love seeing people get along well. (laughs) and have more peace and harmony in their lives. And I I get to experience that in my work. And when I bring in communication training, people start applying it. They report similar things as you're saying now, and it's wonderful for me. Dan, what about you? I know from having spoken to you over these past three years that I believe you've described your own childhood as not being the best training ground for communications, and that might have led you to studying in this area. I would say that's accurate. Uh, The communication that was modeled to me when I was younger was (laughs) suboptimal. And it provided a good incentive to explore more effective communication. And I also had a very strong interest when I was younger in not just psychology, but anthropology. And I particularly was interested in how communication changed in different cultures, the different styles of communication, how much people could talk about, how little they could talk about, the protocols for communication. So I had a background interest in terms of anthropology about culture and communication. However, when I started to work with the communication skills, that allowed me to, practically speaking, look at it in our society, in our culture, and then with friends and groups and parents and the whole thing. How would you say we generally mess communication up? What are the biggest pitfalls? For me, having 
worked with couples and individuals for so long, but especially with couples, unskillful communication really messes people up. A lot of times I've seen people who have good intentions, but the impact does not represent what their intentions are. And a lot of it has to do with communication. We get a lot of our needs met through communication. And as the saying goes, you cannot not communicate. Whenever someone else is in the room with you, you're communicating. Even if you're silent, you just can't get away from it. What you're wearing, how you're moving, how your voice sounds, you're constantly communicating. I would say that picking up on that, that inattentive or poor listening is probably one of the biggest barriers. There's a saying that one of the biggest assumptions with communication is that it's taken place. And I think that's often the case that we assume we've understood somebody. We think we know what they're talking about. Many times that's just not accurate. And it takes some confirmation, reconfirming that the accuracy is there. So listening is one place where without listening, it's hard to have a conversation. You've led us very nicely, Dan, to some of the concrete skills that you have to offer. And I want to flag that for some people, these may sound, and they certainly did to me at the beginning, very basic, so basic as to be just sort of common sense. But Buddhism has been described as advanced common sense. And I would say that that moniker could apply to your communications roadmap. So having issued that caveat, one of the key skills, the early building block skills, is knowing the difference between talking and listening. I'm glad you brought that one up because that's one of those skills that seems so easy. It's so common sense. And it is knowing the difference. Well, most of us know that when we're talking, we're talking and when we're listening, we're listening. If they pay attention, they know that. And that talking is often imparting information and listening is often taking in information. The thing is, many people wander into one or the other habitually without consideration. People don't say, well, would it be better for me to talk or listen at this juncture? and make it a conscious choice, bring mindfulness, bring attentiveness to it. They just follow whatever is habitual. So we've seen big changes in the simple, just the simple awareness of are you talking or listening and which do you think would be better in this situation? And one more thing I wanna add, all the skills that we talk about, including being aware of talking and listening, have to do with communicating in important or consequential conversations, that you don't have to be conscious all of the time. It's too odious for people. You you have to space out and just be on automatic some of the time. That's just part of human nature, I think. And so just to recognize that these skills can enhance your communications in consequential conversations. Yeah, I think that's an example of thinking about or being discerning about when to talk and when to listen that falls in the category you're describing, Dan. It's obvious, and yet it's often overlooked. That falls into another category for us, which is looking at, in communication, two areas. There's content, that is what we talk about, the topics we cover, and this process, how we talk about it, the way in which we conduct the conversation. The skill of being discerning about when to talk and when to listen is an example of a process skill. 
It's about how we conduct the conversation. And that aspect is often invisible, that people don't notice it. It's in the background. We're much more focused on the content, what we say. But the interesting thing about both areas is that you can improve communication by adjusting either area. And content is practically endless. There's so many things we could talk about. But process, there are relatively few simple principles with process that are in the background. So it's something that you can track when you know about it. And by adjusting the process, you can influence the quality of the content. Can you say more about what process entails? Process entails how you talk. Content is what you talk about. The process of whether to talk or whether to listen, that's one. The process of deciding what type of listening to use is another. We've mentioned and worked with you around reflective listening, that is summarizing in your own words your understanding of what someone's saying. That's another kind of process. The idea of being silent and not saying anything in order to create space for the other person to come in to add content is another type of process. These are simple things, but they're often overlooked. Let me restate it to you, just to put a fine point on it. We can use our mindfulness. We don't have to be advanced meditators. We can just use our basic self-awareness to know, and not just self-awareness, awareness of whoever we're with, to know, okay, it's now time to talk or listen. So that's one thing. Second, we can think about conversation as having these two levels of the content, what we're talking about, and the process, how we're doing the talking. And we could tune in to everybody knows about the content. We could tune into the process level again through our innate capacity to just be aware, to be mindful, and think, okay, so I've got a bunch of levers I can pull here. Is it the talking listening binary, or is it a specific kind of listening that I want to do, like reflective listening, which we're going to talk about soon, which is a transformational skill in my view? Or is it now is the time to just stay silent, even if it's uncomfortable, to leave room for people to expand on what they've just said? Anyway, am I, am I restating this correctly? Yeah, I think that's it. And just to pick up a little bit on the option of staying silent, that sometimes following the, say, the Buddhist idea of right speech, that not saying something can be the most skillful thing to do. If you don't have something to say that is useful in the conversation, restraint can be a powerful form of communication. We look at it as a learned skill, restraint. There's so many times people say things and then realize retrospectively, and that was not the right thing to say. That saying anything at that moment wasn't that productive. And then, then they have to clean it up later. So the mindfulness of being aware of when to stop talking is a key skill as well. For example, if somebody is very upset, being silent and not adding more information, not sharing things with the person who's upset often works best. When someone's upset, it's hard for them to take in information, depending on how upset and how much practice they've had doing that. But it's challenging to listen to someone else when you yourself are triggered. So that if you're with somebody who's triggered, if you understand that it's hard for that person to take in information, even your information, 
then you're less likely to start making assumptions like, well, if they really love me, they'd listen to what I have to say now. And you'd realize that the person just isn't able to. They're too triggered. So that's a very important skill or distinction to make in the process. It harkens back to talking or listening. In the three years I've worked with you guys, I've often thought and sometimes articulated a basic lesson from brain science, which I think (laughs) goes to the core of much of what you're teaching, which is when the amygdala or the stress and fear center of the brain is activated, the prefrontal cortex, the more modern, evolved aspect of the brain, which allows us to use logic and reason, goes offline. Mm -hmm. And so I often think that one key to your set of skills is to learn how to communicate in a way that does not trigger the amygdala of your interlocutor, which can be aware enough to see when it is triggered so that you're not adding information that will not be heard. Yes, and that's based on the assumption that when you do want to get your message across to someone and you don't want to trigger that, you want to get your message across. You want to be understood. You want the person to be able to hear what you have to say. That's the very basic reason for wanting to communicate skillfully and not trigger the emotionality. Just to get your message across. It's very self-serving in a way. (laughs) Enlightened self-interest. Exactly. (laughs) We talk about that, yes. Yeah, you, you want to use respectful means in the conversation that optimize your own sense of being understood by the other person and arriving at some mutual understanding and also where you're able to at times, advocate for the other person even through reflecting so that you can have both voices in the conversation. You mentioned reflecting again. We're going to get to that. But before we do, Dan, you mentioned the Buddhist concept of right speech a few minutes ago. Can you just give us a primer? I've never known how to pronounce that word, primer, primer, (laughs) on right speech and maybe even say a little bit about how Buddhism has impacted your teaching. So I think there are many uh, ways to understand right speech. Certainly people who are scholars would go into this with more depth. But the piece that I think both of us take from it is that it involves being truthful in your speech and also noticing whether what you're saying is useful in the current context. Useful in terms of your goals with the other person, your mutual goals in the conversation, useful in terms of being a response which is non-harming, which may include more of a compassionate or empathetic response. So usefulness, of course, is situational. But taking those two factors, truthfulness and usefulness, that's how we integrate right speech into our approach. And that means you don't say everything you're thinking. (laughs) (laughs) because that wouldn't necessarily be useful, even if it might be true. And since we really can't talk as fast as we can think, we're constantly not saying things that we're thinking. So it's a matter of what criteria we use to differentiate what we say and what we don't say. So in this case, usefulness, as Dan said, in right speech becomes a really important guidepost for making that decision and not having a lot of cleanup work afterwards. Although I will add one other thing, which is the meditative aspect of Buddhism as it connects to communication, 
we like to think of communication sometimes as meditation in action. It's where you can really test your sense of equanimity. It's sometimes we've noticed, for example, sitting in retreats, it's possible to get to a very still and quiet and equanimous space. And then going back out, starting conversations, how quickly it's possible to get triggered again. It's a test to bring that meditative awareness into conversation that requires practice and patience and the sense of working with situations where it's not always possible to maintain that equanimity and to developing uh, compassion for oneself, for others, just in that communication is a lifelong practice. Would it be accurate to say you don't have to be a meditator to apply these skills, but it certainly helps? I would agree with that. We've worked with a lot of people who aren't meditators. Many of them can still pay attention and be discerning and be metacognitive, which is what this skill depends on. That is being aware of your thoughts and feelings and sensations, thinking about your thinking. Those are some of the ways we think of metacognition. So it helps to be a meditator, but it's not necessary for learning the skills. So back to the skills, we've made several references to reflective listening. I want to get you guys to describe it, and then maybe we should even role play a little bit, because this, in my experience, is, you know, this is the money. This is such an incredible skill. And I, as you know, I came to you after having had a 360 review, which was where people in my life were able to speak anonymously about my strengths and weaknesses, particularly my weaknesses. And one of the big weaknesses was, you know, I could be pretty unskillful in my communication. And then I got another 360 review and it was very different. You've read both of them. And one of the things that people talked about the most in the second much more positive 360 review, which came three years later, one of the things people talked about the most was reflective listening. So with that introduction, would one of you describe this skill? Yes, I'd love to. It's one of my favorite of the skills that we teach, actually. And I agree with your assessment of the impact of it. Reflective listening is simple and radical. It's radical because the only goal you have when you're using reflective listening is to try to understand what the other person is saying in the way they would like to be understood. So you're not psychoanalyzing them or interpreting them. You're just trying to understand them in the way they want to be understood. And you're feeding back to them what your understanding is, and you're doing that in your own words. You're paraphrasing. You're not parroting. You're not saying what they said. You're not using their words. Using their words can be helpful at times, but I think in a lot of ways it shows that the person who's doing that has a good memory and can memorize what you said and feed it back. It doesn't necessarily mean that the listener has taken in the message in order to repeat back verbatim. But when you translate what you're understanding into your own language, you have to really be taking in what they're saying. And for the speaker to hear their message in your words, oftentimes it's very helpful. It's very clarifying. And within the process of reflective listening, the speaker gets to correct or add on whenever they want. They're in the driver's seat. 
and you follow that speaker with your reflective listening and acknowledging corrections. So in reflective listening, I repeat back to the person in my own words, what I've understood from what they've said. Correct. And you're agreeing or disagreeing with them is irrelevant. At that moment when you're listening, it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree or have opinions or have good advice. None of those things matter because in reflective listening, you're like a mirror. You're reflecting back. You don't even exist in a certain way. This is not to say that you won't have opinions exactly. <laughs> or good reactions. Point. Good point. You very well might. You put those on the back burner when you're reflecting. When it's your turn to talk and the person indicates that either verbally or non-verbally, of course, you do want to share your views with the person, especially if you have a different view. Sometimes people equate reflective listening with agreement. It isn't agreement. Although it's easy to think that the person who's reflecting is agreeing with you since they're reflecting accurately what you're saying. That's when, after reflectively listening, it's important to come in if you have a different view and talk about it. But back to the brain science, what you're doing, especially in contentious discussions, by reflecting before you send your own message is really giving a massage to the other person's amygdala of, okay, it's all good. You're being understood. You're being heard. And once we get that visceral and often subconscious, because sometimes we don't even recognize we're being reflected. Once we get that satisfaction, we're much better able to listen to what somebody else has to say. Yes. We recommend reflecting someone who's distraught so that they can calm down and they can receive your message. It can help them and it can help you. It helps them organize their own experience, their thoughts and feelings being reflected as they get to notice what they are through your reflections. And that has a very soothing effect for many people. The challenge is that it's difficult for people to hold back on their own messages, their own agreements and disagreements and opinions in order to really do a good job reflectively listening. Again, it takes some restraint to wait till it's timely for you to express yourself. Yeah, I don't know anybody who's struggled with that. Definitely not anybody on this conversation. <laughs> so let's do some role play here because I think it's much easier for people to understand it once they see it in action as opposed to having heard a discussion about it. Yes. How would you like to do that, Dan? Do you want do you want to do you want to talk be about something and I'll reflect you and he'll coach or do you want Dan to play it and you want to sit back what what would you What like? would work? Why don't you just because this has the potential to be embarrassing for me, I think that would be good. Let's put me in a position <laughs> where I could get embarrassed. Why don't I be the person in the hot seat trying to reflect and I can reflect whatever you have to say, Mudita, and Dan can play coach. How does that sound? You'll be the Listener, in other words. Yes. And reflector. Yes. yes. Okay. You'd be the reflector. Why don't maybe you send? I'll, I'll send if you want, and she'll be the coach. Great. He, he's a good sender. <laughs> <laughs> My specialty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh, what would you like me to talk about? What topic would you like to talk about? I don't know, make it as hard as possible. 
Well, let's let's talk about something that would be, say, interesting for you to reflect. So, so it does. We don't, we don't recommend you know the diamond slope to start out with. We we think the uh, middle path would be useful. Yeah. So, what might be useful for you? Well, the process of publishing and publicizing a book is very stressful. Why don't you tell me how you're doing? Well, as you know, our book is coming out. It probably will be out when this podcast is aired, and. There are just so many pieces. It's such a long journey. I think for us, we've been writing our book for five years, and we've been doing it collaboratively the entire way through. And there are many, many decisions to make in co-authoring a book where we're trying to capture the scope of our methodology that we've taught for 35 years. So many pieces to juggle so many relationship issues to keep in mind while you're doing the work. It's a huge job. Yeah, that's one side of it is the huge job. Nice example of paraphrasing in your own words. Yes, yes. And not only is it a huge job, finding the voice, the mutual voice, because when we teach workshops or do consulting, we each have our own voices that can dance together with the group or the people that we're working with And in writing, we had to find a unified voice, a voice that had both our styles mixed in with it. And and that took about a year to discover. So the challenge is not just doing the work and synthesizing 35 years of teaching, but it's synthesizing your respective voices. Yes, to form a more unified voice. Exactly, exactly. So there were many false starts with doing that. And many ways in which each of us, I think, had to compromise on the use of language, flowery, less flowery, more direct, less direct, types of metaphors, types of examples, topic selection, (laughs) a lot of mutual decision making. And I think actually if we didn't know the skills or practice the skills as much as we had, it would have been far more challenging relationship-wise. Right. Writing a book is hard for anybody, but it sounds like actually there's the challenge of writing the book and then the challenge of practicing what you preach. Yes. It's, nice it, again. It's weird. Exactly. That's, you're, you're, you're sucking out the essence of what Dan <laughs> is saying and feeding it back to him, which let me, let me ask Dan, how's this feeling yes, for you, Yes, this Dan? is wonderful since I'm getting a chance to talk about something that's been brewing in the background for a long time <laughs> and to have be able to hear it coming back in the kind of crystalline way you're reflecting. It's helpful for confirming it, but it's evocative for me. I get to go a little bit further with what I'm trying to say when I hear that reflection. And what I think you're illustrating here, and now I'm no longer reflecting, is that this skill is useful not only on the diamond slope of conflict, but also in any conversation where you want to make sure that you're having a healthy dialogue. And it is, as you describe it, a kind of gift that you're offering to somebody else to show that you understand them. You're giving them this primordial human desire of being heard and seen and understood. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And uh, just to add a little distinction to this, sometimes people think that asking questions is the same exact thing as reflecting. And there is a difference. And I think that's important to understand is that questions are very useful and can be certainly a helpful part of conversations. 
we distinguish reflecting from questions and that questions often contain what the person who's asking the questions think would be valuable for the other person to talk about. So in certain sense, questions in their own way direct the other person who's speaking down a particular path that the listener thinks would be useful to talk about, which might be the case or might not be the case. Yes, they're both ways of getting information, of soliciting more information. Reflective listening often has a gentler feel than questioning. Questioning can sometimes seem like interrogation, and people might not like that, and it might have the opposite effect on them. They might close up rather than open up. Well, that's a mistake I've made many times as a trained interviewer and sometimes trying to port my interviewing over to actual interpersonal interactions with with people I'm not interviewing, like my spouse. I would also say a benefit of this for me has been that one of the very accurate complaints that people have had about me over the years is that I can be impatient and dismissive. And training myself to listen closely to what people are saying so that I can repeat it back to them in my own words, or as Mudita likes to say, reflect the bones of their message, has been a huge shift in the way I interact with people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's changed your style of, I guess, being responsive to people, it sounds like. Nice reflection, Clerman. Nice reflection. (laughs) (laughs) Your own sense of responsiveness, I would say. Yes, exactly. And that you get more out of it in some way. There's something additional that you get out of these conversations. Yes, I mean, I would say this leads me to another skill, something that I've heard you talk about, which is understanding in a conversation what are your content goals. In other words, what do you want to convey? And what's your relationship goal? So I may be in a conversation where I don't care about the content, But the content is coming from my wife, who I do care about, and I don't want to spend the next 48 hours of my life miserable. So I try to revert back to what's my relationship goal here. Yes. Maybe you could say, I'm curious how you orient yourself when you're thinking that way about your relationship goal versus your content goal. How does that change your communication behavior, say, in that situation? I think heretofore, and if I'm being honest, it still happens now, I can be in a rela- in a conversation where I'm not that interested or I'm too distracted and I'm just trying to quickly convey a point or quickly hear what somebody has to say and move on. And when I'm on my game, which is, you know, maybe 10% of the time now, I can remember, oh, no, 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 let's move, shift out of content goal for this interaction to relationship goal and realize, actually, this is an important person in my life. I want to have a good relationship with them. I should make sure that they understand that I've understood. Yes. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yes. So that's a wonderful additional tool in communication is to have awareness of both those goals. I see that, for example, some people who've taken our training, say attorneys, who usually love our training because it has a critical thinking component to it, and and invites rational or logical thoughts just fine in it, is that they might be habitually used to being argumentative in their professional life and having a focus on winning points. And yet in a family situation, when they're having dinner with their family, with their kids, 
that style doesn't work that well to engender harmony and the relationship goal of closeness, intimacy. Yeah, I think with content and relationship goals and the awareness of them, it's very helpful and a really good feeling when you know what you're going towards, what your priorities are, when you can keep your priorities straight and let them guide you in terms of how you want to behave in a situation. It takes a load off. It's like finding the path somewhere. Coming up after the break, Mudita and Dan explain what they mean by I language and provisional language, and of course, how and why to use both of those concepts after this. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, They have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com slash deals. You use the phrase critical thinking, Dan. What do you mean by that in this context? Critical thinking is assessing the quality of your thinking. And in our work, that's an important aspect of the skills, the communication skills. We alluded to that earlier when we are talking about right speech is one aspect of critical thinking could be to notice what you're saying and, you know, is this truthful? Is it useful? That's a critical thinking element. Another one is separating facts from opinions. Is what I'm saying a fact or is it an opinion? Because if I state my opinions, this goes to content now, we're talking about the content aspect of communication. If I state my opinions to someone as if they're a fact and it's not a fact, that could be very confusing. And we see this being played out on the larger stage where opinions are stated as facts in politics, for example, and it makes for very poor decision-making, a lot of misinformation and confusion. So in the skills, we really like to distinguish between stating opinions as opinions and clarifying that they're different from facts. Mudita, how do we do that when the rubber hits the road? Well, through noticing the language, I'd say, noticing how we're using language. If I say, Dan, you're inconsiderate. You didn't remember my birthday this year. You didn't acknowledge my birthday. You're inconsiderate. 
I'm saying that Dan is inconsiderate as if it were a fact. I'm not saying it as if it's my opinion. Just to be clear, you're talking about Dan Clerman, not Dan Harris. Here. Oh, of course. You would never forget my birthday, <laughs> Dan Harris. <laughs> you don't even know when my birthday is. Well, that's great. I, there's nothing to forget. <laughs> so I'm saying it like it's a fact that he's inconsiderate. You're inconsiderate. I always knew you were inconsiderate. Right. So when she states it that way, it seems like it's a fact. Even putting, and just in terms of language... That behavior of not calling me that this morning on my for my birthday, I think of that as being inconsiderate. Now we're distinguishing a little bit more. The event was didn't receive the phone call. That's a fact. But the opinion about it is, to me, that's a sign of being inconsiderate. Still likely to land hard on the interlocutor's amygdala. Yes. Yes, yes. It still would be a tough one to take. This is where we go back to using more I language, which we've talked about too. But that distinction alone is often helpful because people will have a knee-jerk reaction to being characterized as if it was a fact. That's the way they are versus this is what I saw happening. This is the behavior. You know, this is how I translate it. This is what I call that. You mentioned the term I language. We haven't talked about it yet in this conversation. The three of us have talked about it extensively in our work together but it's a key concept, and it does help you communicate in a way that sounds less accusatory. So if somebody just staying with your birthday example, where, you know, Dan Clerman, horrible person, forgets your birthday again, there's a way to talk about that using, and this is the term of art here, I language, that might allow it to go down easier in the brain of the other person. So can you describe how that would work, what I language is? Well, the difference between accusing Dan in a way that makes it sound like a fact that he's an inconsiderate person versus saying, I really look forward to people I love contacting me on my birthday. I really, to me, that's like, makes it a special day. And I miss not hearing from you or getting those flowers that you usually send me. I miss that, and I'm going to stop there. So that would be the I message would be, what it means to me is focus more on the meaning of his not acknowledging my birthday rather than focus on characterizing him in a certain way. It sounds like it's factual. And there's something about that that is just markedly different from pointing a finger and talking about you, 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 you. This is just describing your experience. It's very hard to argue with somebody's experience. Yes. And, you know, as long as we've been doing this work, it's amazed me that this is one of the hardest things for people, myself included. It takes a lot of practice to learn to do something so simple as just to report what's happening for you. It's so much easier to point the finger at somebody else. I used to think it was because, for me, you uh, language was easier because I studied psychology and kind of I was focusing on the other person a lot. But then I saw that almost everybody I've ever trained has the problem of just reporting what's happening for them, which is very meditative. Eye language is another tool for mindfulness. Because it asks the person using it to notice their own experience, what's happening, thoughts, feelings, sensations, rather than characterizing somebody else. And there's something about 
our socialization that seems to point us quickly towards characterizing other people. And it's more difficult to take a look at what's happening for us. Is there never a time when it's appropriate to characterize somebody else? By appropriate, I mean within this framework. Well, I would be very reluctant, of course, to say that there would never be a time. In general, we stay away from characterizations because they often imply that people are a certain way across time. And most people aren't. Most people vary in their behavior. So it's often not accurate to characterize. And we like being accurate. I think just to that point is that the danger with characterizing other people is that the label can become a shortcut for noticing the exceptions. That if I say that someone's irresponsible, would they take that to mean across everything they do? Or is that in a certain situation, they acted in a way that I wouldn't say was being responsible? To me, that was not what I would call being responsible. These labels become blinders in a way, or filters. Even positive characterizations can be problematic. I know I felt uncomfortable when people have characterized me in positive terms sometimes. It's like, well, I don't deserve that. You know, that's I'm not always that way or something. I start to find exceptions, just like what Dan is saying, for positive characterizations, but negative ones really much harder to take are it. much harder. It's usually not necessary to characterize someone. It's not that you can't especially if it's clear that it's your characterization, you're owning it as yours. You're not saying it as if it were a fact. But still, I don't see the need for it that much. I want to amplify, and this I think is directly relevant, will build upon what we've just been discussing. I want to amplify, there was a little moment a few minutes ago where you said, Budita, well, I would be reluctant to say never. (laughs) And that goes to another key skill that has been very powerful in my own life. The term, your term for this is provisional language. Can you describe that? Provisional language is language that takes into account that change is a constant, that uncertainty about the future is the norm. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. So if we say something never will be, for the for many examples, we don't know that that's true or not. Or if I say I'm a shy person. That implies that I'm always shy. I start to think I'm always shy. I don't go to that party where new people are going to be at the party because I think I'm shy. And I know I'm not going to have a good time because I'm a shy person. So then I don't go to the party. And then that proves that I am a shy person. I can't go to parties. Non-provisional language like that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And box you in. Provisional language, as Murita is saying, just acknowledges the possibility of change. And certain words like always or never can evoke defensiveness for the part of the person hearing a statement that contains that, you always forget my birthday. They'll most likely dig in and find one or two exceptions. And then your conversation becomes about the exceptions. the exceptions and how they didn't take that into account. You, it's hard to move on to the rest of your message when you use triggering non-provisional language. I don't know if I'm misapplying it, but another way in which I found myself applying what I would call provisional language, but maybe I'm mislabeling it, is 
to have the mindfulness to see that dogmatism comes with subtle pain. Mm. Pretending, and that's usually what I'm doing, pretending that I am more certain than I am doesn't feel good if I'm paying attention. So if I can just put in some little caveats in what I'm saying, you know, maybe what happened last night was that, or maybe you, maybe what was going on for you here was, or mm -hmm. perhaps the reason why we hit that tree is because you were looking at your phone or just, <laughs> just having some humility baked into whatever is coming out of your mouth feels better and is more aligned with the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's often more accurate when you say aligned with the truth. I think that when you make statements that go beyond the evidence, you're less likely to be proven accurate. So by relying more on the evidence and less on overgeneralized language, you, you can get a little closer to what we're calling truth or accuracy. It feels, it often feels better. Better in the sense that internally I'm stating things that are more accurate, that leave possibilities for exceptions, that invite the other person to talk about something that they may perceive differently. So provisional language can be very useful in conversations where it would be easy to get polarized or triggered and get into a conflict. And you were doing it just there. You said it feels better, but then you corrected yourself to say it often feels better. And then Correct. you went on to say provisional language can be useful. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's just these little ticks that can seem you know, inconsequential, but they're massively consequential, again, in how they land in the brain of whoever you're talking to. Yes. Imagine writing a book and wanting to be provisional about just about everything we're saying in the book. <laughs> Quite a challenge. <laughs> that was part of the challenge. And I would say one aspect of it is, and this is an important part of our work too, is that we believe that language influences behavior and perception as well as communication. So we've noticed, I think, that over time using provisional language as part of how we communicate and teaching it to other people, that starts to actually shift my perception of how I see the world. Occasionally, not all the time. And the more I can be provisional, the more I see the world in that way. It changes the perception that things can change. It starts to recondition perception. It starts to change my attitudes, my way of seeing the world. You know, that's making me think about something. You said Mudita wants this incredibly, I found it to be incredibly profound. It just came up in one of our sessions. And you were not in any way demeaning therapy. But what I heard you say was that we can do tons of therapy to get at the root of our behavior. And it can be useful. But this going right to the tip of the spear of rewiring how we communicate can in some ways sort of like back program the mind and have all of these profound consequences. Am I restating what you said with some degree of accuracy? I love it. <laughs> I think you're stating it more eloquently than I did. <laughs> I doubt but that. But I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> Coming up, more tools from Mudita and Dan, including stating positive intentions, framing, and the concept of flooding versus chunking. Plus, we're going to talk about the 
ultimate goals of learning and applying all of these tools after this. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. So we've been doing this great sort of romp through your skills and we're we're really just skimming the surface, but I think we're giving people some practical takeaways and I recommend everybody read the book to go deeper on this. But so another skill that I think is worth talking about in our remaining time here is stating your positive intention. Mm -hmm. What is that? Stating your positive intention might be one of the most important parts of what you say to someone. Although... in more recent times, noticing the impact you're having seems to be right up there with stating your positive intention. But I'm not going to talk about impact right now. Just focus on positive intention. What do you want in this message? Why are you bothering to speak? What are you looking for? Most people know what they don't want. I don't like it when you, or I don't want to, many people state their intentions in the negative. Maybe it's the negativity bias. I'm not sure what. But people seem to need a little time and practice to figure out what is it they do want. And when you know what you don't want, like, I don't want to be late. Well, then what do you want? I want to be on time. I want to leave earlier so I can get there on time. It's not that hard to translate a negative stated intention into positive. One of the benefits of identifying and stating a positive intention is it lets the other person know where you'd like to go, particularly in a conversation. And particularly when we're in a potential conflict or we're trying to make a decision, stating intentions negatively don't move the conversation ahead. But a positive intention points to a direction of possibility. So even though it seems obvious or it seems simple, just 
identifying and stating positive intentions in a conversation can start to orient both people to a possibility in mind. It sort of provides a little bit of a roadmap, in a sense, to where to go next. Yeah, I'll just talk a little bit about how I've found it to be useful in my own life, which is that especially in a difficult conversation where I have something to say that could be triggering or could be hard for the other person, to state my positive intention, which is I'm telling you this because I care about this relationship or I want to have a good working relationship or I want to not get divorced or whatever it is, that frame, which by the way, frame is another term of art we might want to get to before we close here, but putting that kind of top spin on the message does what I keep talking about here, which is it gets you down the road toward preventing unnecessary activation of the other person's amygdala so that they can't hear the crucial thing you're trying to tell them. Yeah, true. Very true. So I mentioned it. What is a frame? <laughs> a frame is a way that you'd like to orient, say, the person who is listening to the conversation overall. It's a path towards what you'd like to achieve in the conversation, or how you'd like the other person to take your message or the conversation. I think of it as a kind of heads up to the person, kind of a listen up, this is what's coming. So they're more prepared to hear what you have to say. And one of the benefits of thinking about what's my frame for this conversation, particularly a consequential one, is it would orient me as the person who's maybe trying to influence someone to pick up on a certain policy or a way of solving a problem. It orients me towards what way can I start this conversation so it's invitational, so it takes both of us towards a point that we'd like to get to. So that's a big advantage, and it lets the other person know where I'd like to go to. It orients them. And too often when people don't think about it, they might say a frame, like they don't even know they're framing, and they might say something like, well, I'm just having a really hard time with how we're working together, and start with that as their frame. Or let me tell you about a problem I'm having with you. Exactly. And so, it, obviously, it's not the most inviting frame. Whereas, you know, I'd like to talk about our conversation and figure out how we can improve or how we can work together. Just something more positive and inviting. Implied in what you've been talking about, both of you, for the last few minutes, is that we should be doing some thinking before consequential conversations about how we're going to frame it. Yes, yeah, very good point, too, which we haven't made explicit, that... Some of these skills do take forethought. And so you can get ready for a communication. Of course, you don't know how it's going to unfold exactly, but just getting ready, thinking about your frame and what you want to say and what your positive intention is can improve the outcome. There's another really important skill, one I probably should have steered us to earlier because it's foundational, but I don't want to or at least I think it's foundational. I see some big provisional there. I don't want to have gotten through this conversation and not touched on it, which is the difference between flooding and chunking. Flooding is when you're sending a message, when you're talking, and you're talking in pages. If you were writing, it would be pages. Versus chunking, which is talking in the equivalent of a paragraph, much shorter, 
When you talk in chunks rather than flooding, you're making room for your listener to participate with you, to come in, ask questions, contribute. When you're flooding, there's not enough space between what you're saying to allow the listener to come in. In other words, when you chunk, you're leaving pauses rather than just going on and on and on. And just to point out that flooding and chunking, these are process skills that influence the content. Bringing a full circle there, Dan, I like that, bringing it back to the distinction between process and content. And you know what I love about this flooding and chunking thing is actually one of the first skills you brought up in relationship as my teacher-student relationship with both of you. And it was, again, one of these seemingly obvious things, but I realized I've been flooding my whole life. I've just been, you know, just <laughs> saying everything I wanted to say all at once without applying the skills I learned as a journalist, as a storyteller, which is you have to be really strategic about how you impart information in what order and at what length so that you're, again, like making sure that the other person is online and with you. And I think... What you're talking about is related to another principle in our work, which is what we call loop communication, which is that when you are speaking to someone, they have a response to what you're saying. And when you chunk and you leave room for their response, it's important to hear that response because it's going to affect what you say next. And as someone who, who's also worked with flooding excessively, <laughs> if I start flooding, and I get oriented towards just this one-way aspect of the communication, and I don't pick up on how the other person wants to get into the conversation or is signaling me or wants to influence me to consider another idea, then I'll lose that loop aspect of the communication. We'll get out of sync. And sometimes when the listener tries to get in, the person who's flooding might say, don't interrupt me. <laughs> Let me finish. Not realizing that it's just gone on for too long. Often when somebody floods, they just kind of get going, riffing on, on what they're saying. And a lot of times the most important part of what they're saying is in the middle of their long flood. And by now the listener has tuned out. Yes. And one thing to add about this is that when you flood, it's not that someone necessarily has a malicious intent. We're talking about communication habits. So it, this might have just been modeled, you know, what your parents did. It was their style of communicating was to go on for pages and not chunk. And so inadvertently, just pick it up and use it and not even think about it until it's pointed out. We only have a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask the two final questions I often ask. One is, well, where, if anywhere, did I commit any journalistic malpractice and not ask you a question I should have asked? Are there any remaining points you'd like to make that I failed to give you the opportunity to make? I would say maybe just to add that the aim of our work is to promote harmony and reduce suffering, that we see communication, effective communication, as a way for people to get along better with each other, probably also have more fun in conversations, but also to be able to coordinate and work together in ways where they can build trust. Communication is a stress reduction tool. And when people are less stressed, they're usually more able to be compassionate with other people. So by helping people reduce their own stress, hopefully we're spreading a little bit more compassion into the world. 
Well, you've spread more compassion into my world. I'll say that at the very <laughs> Thank least. You. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you both for all the work you've done. And just in closing here, can I get you to just plug your new book and any other resources you've put out into the world that you want us to know about? Sure. Our new book is Let's Talk. Subtitle. An, an Essential Guide to Skillful Communication. And our site is letstalkmethod.com. We will most likely offer a workshop that'll be through Zoom on the skills. And we regularly do coaching with individuals, groups, and organizations. So to get in touch with us, you can email us at letstalkmethod at gmail.com. And you can stay in touch with us by going to our site and just signing up for our mailing list. This is a book that's based on the work we've been doing for over 30 years. And uh, if you're interested in communication, I think it's pretty juicy and very helpful. It's got foundational information, philosophical, lots of skills. It's got application of skills. We put our heart and souls into this. So we hope lots of people will buy it and take it to heart and improve their communications. Congratulations on the new book. Thanks for doing the work. Yeah. (laughs) And thank you for doing what you're doing, too, and bringing so many voices. To so many listeners. To so many listeners in a time when people really could use this type of information, all the things that you discuss on 10% and uh, bring it to the world is uh, really valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thanks again to Dan Klerman and Mudita Nisker. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for being part of my life. Really appreciate both. Go check out their book. Thank you as well to all of the amazing people who work so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode with Susan Piver, a great meditation teacher. She's going to be the first guest to come on the show and explain what the hell the Enneagram is. I've been hearing so many people that I really respect and trust raving about this thing called the Enneagram. Susan's got a whole book about the overlap between the Enneagram and Buddhism. So she's going to come on and communicate effectively on Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, Uh, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. 
No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.